Chapter Three, Part One of the Ragged Trousered Philanthropists. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Ragged Trousered Philanthropists by Robert Tressel. Chapter Three, Part One. That night, as Easton walked home through the rain, he felt very depressed. It had been a very bad summer for most people, and he had not fared better than the rest. A few weeks with one firm, a few days with another, then out of a job, then on again for a month, perhaps, and so on. William Easton was a man of medium height, about twenty-three years old, with fair hair and moustache, and blue eyes. He wore a stand-up collar with a coloured tie, and his clothes, though shabby, were clean and neat. He was married. His wife was a young woman whose acquaintance he had made when he had happened to be employed with others painting the outside of the house where she was a general servant. They had walked out for about fifteen months. Easton had been in no hurry to marry, for he knew that, taking good times with bad, his wages did not average a pound a week. At the end of that time, however, he found that he could not honourably delay longer, so they were married. That was twelve months ago. As a single man he had never troubled much if he happened to be out of work. He always had enough to live on, and pocket-money besides. But now that he was married it was different. The fear of being out haunted him all the time. He had started for Rushton & Co. on the previous Monday, after having been idle for three weeks, and as the house where he was working had to be done right through, he had congratulated himself on having secured a job that would last till Christmas. But he now began to fear that what had befallen Jack Linden might also happen to himself at any time. He would have to be very careful not to offend Crass in any way. He was afraid the latter did not like him very much as it was. Easton knew that Crass could get him the sack at any time, and would not scruple to do so if he wanted to make room for some crony of his own. Crass was the coddy or foreman of the job. Considered as a workman he had no very unusual abilities. He was, if anything, inferior to the majority of his fellow workmen. But although he had but little real ability, he pretended to know everything, and the vague references he was in the habit of making on tones and shades and harmony had so impressed Hunter that the latter had a high opinion of him as a workman. It was by pushing himself forward in this way, and by judicious toadying to Hunter, that Crass managed to get himself put in charge of work. Although Crass did as little work as possible himself, he took care that the others worked hard. Any man who failed to satisfy him in this respect, he reported to Hunter as being no good, or too slow for a funeral. The result was that this man was dispensed with at the end of the week. The men knew this, and most of them feared the wily Crass accordingly, though there were a few whose known abilities placed him to a certain extent above the reach of his malice. Frank Owen was one of these. There were others who, by the judicious administration of pipefuls of tobacco and pints of beer, managed to keep in Crass's good graces, and often retained their employment when better workmen were stood off. As he walked home through the rain thinking of these things, Easton realised that it was not possible to foresee what a day or even an hour might bring forth. By this time he had arrived at his home. It was a small house, one of a long row of similar ones, and it contained altogether four rooms. The front door opened into a passage about two feet six inches wide and ten feet in length, covered with oil cloth. At the end of the passage was a flight of stairs leading to the upper part of the house. The first door on the left led into the front sitting-room, an apartment about nine feet square with a bay window. 
This room was very rarely used, and was always very tidy and clean. The mantelpiece was of wood painted black, and ornamented with jagged streaks of red and yellow, which were supposed to give the appearance of marble. On the walls was a paper with a pale terracotta ground, and a pattern consisting of large white roses, with chocolate-coloured leaves and stalks. There was a small iron fender with fire-irons to match, and on the mantel-shelf stood a clock in a polished wood case, a pair of blue-glass vases, and some photographs in frames. The floor was covered with oil-cloth of a tile-pattern in yellow and red. On the walls were two or three framed-coloured prints, such as are presented with Christmas numbers of illustrated papers. There was also a photograph of a group of Sunday schoolgirls with their teachers, with the church for the background. In the centre of the room was a round deal table about three feet six inches across, with the legs stained red to look like mahogany. Against one wall was an old couch, covered with faded cretonne, four chairs to match, standing backs to wall, in different parts of the room. The table was covered with a red cloth, and with a yellow crewel-work design in the centre and in each of the four corners, the edges being overcast in the same material. On the table were a lamp, and a number of brightly bound books. Some of these things, as the couch and chairs, Easton had bought second-hand and had done up himself. The table, oilcloth, fender, hearthrug, etc., had been obtained on the hire system and were not yet paid for. The windows were draped with white lace curtains, and in the bay was a small bamboo table, on which reposed a large holy Bible, cheap but showily bound. If anyone had ever opened this book, they would have found that its pages were as clean as the other things in the room, and on the fly-leaf might have been read the following inscription. To dear Ruth, from her loving friend, Mrs. Starvam, with a prayer that God's word may be her guide, and that Jesus may be her very own Saviour. October 12th, 19-something. Mrs. Starvam was Ruth's former mistress, and this had been her parting gift when Ruth left to get married. It was supposed to be a keepsake, but as Ruth never opened the book, and never willingly allowed her thoughts to dwell upon the scenes of which it reminded her, she had forgotten the existence of Mrs. Starvam almost as completely as that well-to-do and pious lady had forgotten hers. For Ruth, the memory of the time she spent in the house of her loving friend was the reverse of pleasant. It comprised a series of recollections of petty tyrannies, insults, and indignities. Six years of cruelly excessive work, beginning every morning two or three hours before the rest of the household were awake, and ceasing only when she went exhausted to bed late at night. She had been what is called a slavey, but if she had been really a slave, her owner would have had some regard for her health and welfare. Her loving friend had had none. Mrs. Starvam's only thought had been to get out of Ruth the greatest possible amount of labour, and to give her as little as possible in return. When Ruth looked back upon that dreadful time, she saw it, as one might say, surrounded by a halo of religion. She never passed by a chapel, or heard the name of God, or the singing of a hymn, without thinking of her former mistress. To have looked into this Bible would have reminded her of Mrs. Starvam. That was one of the reasons why the book reposed, unopened and unread, a mere ornament on the table in the bay window. The second door in the passage, near the foot of the stairs, led into the kitchen or living-room. From here another door led into the scullery. Upstairs were two bedrooms. As Easton entered the house, his wife met him in the passage, and asked him not to make a noise, as the child had just gone to sleep. 
They kissed each other, and she helped him to remove his wet overcoat. Then they both went softly into the kitchen. This room was about the same size as a sitting-room. At one end was a small range with an oven and a boiler, and a high mantelpiece painted black. On the mantel-shelf was a small round alarm-clock and some brightly polished tin canisters. At the other end of the room, facing the fireplace, was a small dresser, on the shelves of which were neatly arranged a number of plates and dishes. The walls were papered with oak paper. On one wall, between two coloured almanacs, hung a tin lamp with a reflector behind the light. In the middle of the room was an oblong deal table with a white tablecloth, upon which the tea-things were set ready. There were four kitchen chairs, two of which were placed close to the table. Overhead, across the room, about eighteen inches down from the ceiling, were stretched several cords, upon which were drying a number of linen or calico undergarments, a coloured shirt, and Easton's white apron and jacket. On the back of a chair, at one side of the fire, more clothes were drying. At the other side, on the floor, was a wicker cradle, in which a baby was sleeping. Nearby stood a chair with a towel hung on the back, arranged so as to shade the infant's face from the light of the lamp. An air of homely comfort pervaded the room. The atmosphere was warm, and the fire blazed cheerfully over the whitened hearth. They walked softly over and stood by the cradle-side, looking at the child. As they looked, the baby kept moving uneasily in its sleep. Its face was very flushed, and its eyes were moving under the half-closed lids. Every now and again its lips were drawn back slightly, showing part of the gums. Presently it began to whimper drawing up its knees as if in pain. "'He seems to have something wrong with him,' said Easton. "'I think it's his teeth,' replied the mother. "'He's been very restless all day, and he was awake nearly all last night.' "'Perhaps he's hungry.' "'No, it can't be that. He's had the best part of an egg this morning, and I've nursed him several times to-day. And then, at dinner-time, he had a whole saucer full of dried potatoes, with little bits of bacon in it. Again the infant whimpered and twisted in its sleep, its lips drawn back showing the gums, its knees pressed closely to its body, the little fists clenched and face flushed. Then after a few seconds it became placid, the mouth resumed its usual shape, the limbs relaxed and the child slumbered peacefully. "'Don't you think he's getting thin?' asked Easton. "'It may be fancy, but he don't seem to me to be as big now as he was three months ago.' "'No, he's not quite so fat,' admitted Ruth. "'It's his teeth what's wearing him out. "'He don't hardly gets no rest at all with them.' They continued looking at him a little longer. Ruth thought he was a very beautiful child. He would be eight months old on Sunday. They were sorry they could do nothing to ease the pain, but consoled themselves with the reflection that he would be all right once those teeth were through. "'Well, let's have some tea,' said Easton at last. Whilst he removed his wet boots and socks and placed them in front of the fire to dry, and put on dry socks and a pair of slippers in their stead, Ruth half filled a tin basin with hot water from the boiler and gave it to him, and then he went to the scullery, added some cold water, and began to wash the paint off his hands. This done, he returned to the kitchen and sat down at the table. "'I couldn't think what to give you to eat to-night,' said Ruth as she poured the tea. I hadn't got no money left, and there wasn't nothing in the house except bread and butter and that piece of cheese. So I cut some bread and butter, and put some thin slices of cheese on it, and toasted it on a plate in front of the fire. I hope you like it. It was the best I could do. That's all right. It smells very nice anyway, and I'm very hungry. 
As they were taking their tea, Easton told his wife about Lyndon's affair, and the apprehensions as to what might befall himself. They were both very indignant, and very sorry for poor old Lyndon, but their sympathy for him was soon forgotten in their fears for their own immediate future. They remained at the table in silence for some time. Then, "'How much rent do we owe now?' asked Easton. Four weeks, and I'd promised the collector last time he called that we'd pay two weeks next Monday. He was quite nasty about it.' "'Well, I suppose you'll have to pay it, that's all,' said Easton. "'How much money will you have to-morrow?' asked Ruth. He began to reckon up his time. He started on Monday, and today was Friday. Five days, from seven to five, less half an hour for breakfast and an hour for dinner, eight and a half hours a day, forty-two hours and a half. At sevenpence an hour that came to one pound four and ninepence halfpenny. "'You know I only started on Monday,' he said, "'so there's no back day to come. Tomorrow goes into next week.' "'Yes, I know,' replied Ruth. "'If we pay the two weeks' rent, that'll leave us twelve shillings to live on.' "'But we won't be able to keep all that,' said Ruth, "'because there's other things to pay.' "'What other things?' "'We owe the baker eight shillings for the bread he let us have while you were not working, "'and there's about twelve shillings owing for groceries. "'We'll have to pay them something on account. "'Then we want some more coal. "'There's only about a shovelful left, and—' "'Wait a minute,' said Easton. "'The best way is to write down a list of everything we owe. "'Then we shall know exactly where we are.' You get me a piece of paper and tell me what to write. Then we'll see what it all comes to. Do you mean everything we owe, or everything we must pay tomorrow? I think we'd better make a list of all we owe first. While they were talking, the baby was sleeping restlessly, occasionally uttering plaintive little cries. The mother now went and knelt at the side of the cradle, which she gently rocked with one hand, patting the infant with the other. Except the furniture people, the biggest thing we owe is the rent she said when Easton was ready to begin. "'Seems to me,' said he, as, after having cleared a space on the table and arranged the paper, he began to sharpen his pencil with the table-knife, "'that you don't manage things as well as you might. If you was to make a list of just the things you must have before you went out on Saturday, you'd find the money would go much farther. Instead of doing that, you just take the money in your hand, without knowing exactly what you're going to do with it. "'and when you come back it's all gone and next to nothing to show for it.' "'His wife made no reply. Her head was bent over the child. "'Now, let's see,' went on her husband. First of all there's a rent. How much did you say we owe?' Four weeks. That's the three weeks you were out and this week.' Four sixes is twenty-four. That's one pound four, said Easton, as he wrote it down. Next. Grocer twelve shillings. Easton looked up in astonishment. Twelve shillings? Why, didn't you tell me only the other day that you'd paid up all we owed for groceries? Don't you remember we owed thirty-five shillings last spring? Well, I've been paying that bit by bit all the summer. I paid the last of it the week you finished your last job. Then you were out three weeks, up to last Friday, and as we had nothing in hand, I had to get what we wanted without paying for it. But do you mean to say that it cost us three shillings a week for tea and sugar and butter? "'It's not only them. There's been bacon and eggs, and cheese and other things.' The man was beginning to become impatient. "'Well,' he said, "'what else?' "'We owe the baker eight shillings. We did owe nearly a pound, but I've been paying it off a little at a time.' 
This was added to the list. Then there's the milkman. I've not paid him for four weeks. He hasn't sent a bill yet, but you can reckon it up. We had two pennyworth every day. That's four and eight, said Easton, writing it down. Anything else? One and seven to the greengrocer for potatoes, cabbage, and paraffin oil. Anything else? We are the butcher, two and sevenpence. Why, we haven't had any meat for a long time, said Easton. When was it? Three weeks ago, don't you remember? A small leg of mutton. Oh, yes, and he added the item. And then there's the instalments for the furniture and oilcloth, twelve shillings. A letter came from them today, and there's something else. She took three letters from the pocket of her dress and handed them to him. They all came today. I didn't show them to you before, as I didn't want to upset you before you had your tea. End of chapter 3, part 1